is a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Tomorrow's just a dream away Man has a dream and that's the start He follows his dream with mind and heart When it becomes a reality It's a dream come true for you and me So there's a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Just a dream away Hello and welcome to Dream with Mind and Heart. I'm Ryan Silverstein and with me is Megan Bojarski. Hi. And we're your hosts through this chronological tour of every Disney movie ever. This week we are going to cover another classic Disney animated film, the 13th of theirs uh, overall in terms of feature films. This is the 1951 adaptation of Lewis Carroll's classic Alice in Wonderland, which of course also does which also draws on Through the Looking Glass and what Alice found there as well, as I feel like a lot of adaptations tend to do. This was released on July 26th, 1951 in London, and then a few days later in New York City, and then had a wider release in September of 1951. And so, yeah, this is a big, this is kind of a big one. I feel like in terms of the iconography uh especially i want to i want to sort of say since the rise of disney at hot topic has sort of gotten i think kind of a a third life to it so megan what's your uh what's your history with with alice and then i will go and talk about my history with this movie i didn't see it when i was like very little but i was very much into like the idea of going into new magical worlds so my cousin said that I needed to see it, and I think he found it online somewhere. This was, I don't know, early 2000s, so definitely uh, the sketchier ways of finding things online. And so I saw it first that way. And it's funny, I, I know this movie. I know all of the pieces of this movie, and yet I can't ever really put in my mind at any point what this movie is. And I was thinking about that a lot as I was working on the notes for this, that I would think about like the music or the characters. And I'm like, you know, I don't really think of anything for Alice in Wonderland. And then something plays and I'm like, oh, right, duh, the most you know famous song ever. How could I not think of that? So it's weird. It's something that I like know probably better than just about anything we've covered up till now. And yet I don't know it in a lot of ways, too. Like it just... It doesn't hold its spot in my mind, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I think that actually does make sense. Because even rewatching it for this, this is not one that was a frequent watch in my house for reasons I'll explain in, in a moment. But I know all the pieces of this, but it's it's the kind of movie where it's hard to tell. It's hard to remember in what order things happen because everything is happening and it's so quickly paced. And I think it moves from scene to scene like... You know, even just having watched it within the last 48 hours, I wouldn't be able to tell you off the top of my head if the flower scene takes place before or after the tea party scene. I know that the, you know, I know all the stuff before she gets to Wonderland and she's trying to get through the door and then she's uh, in the bottle in the ocean 
and I'm pretty good all the way up until like the walrus and the carpenter with stuff. And then a bunch of other things happen. And then it's, you know, then she's playing croquet with the queen and the trial of like all that stuff like hangs together. But like, I remember all the pieces. Like I remember there's a lizard named Bill and he has a ladder and she's in the house. But I, again, like I trying to segment out what happens in what order for this is hard. And it is a very episodic movie. But it's also the kind of movie where everything happens and also nothing happens, (laughs) which I think makes it sort of hard to keep straight in your head when you think back to it. Yeah, I think that as much as we'll talk about the company struggling to kind of capture the energy, they definitely get the vibe of being in a dream and weird things happening because of dream logic. And that's probably part of why I would say that one of my favorite parts is the flower scene. And yet, when you said it, I think it's after the tea party, but I'm not sure. And I literally watched this within the last five hours. So it's it's kind of wild, like, like we've both said, just that there are so many pieces and we can know all the pieces, and yet we can't quite hold on to them in a concrete way like we have with most of the other movies. So I have a very particular story as to perhaps explain why this is not one that I'm particularly fond of. I'm not a huge Alice in Wonderland fan in general, but I feel like my experience with this movie as a kid is maybe the reason for that and not the other way around. When I was a small child, I remember watching this movie on the TV in our in our home, and that room had a bathroom like adjacent to it. And so, like, I remember watching it. I remember being really upset by the the scene with the where she's trying to get through the keyhole, and she's like large, and then she's small, and then he's like, "Oh, you forgot the key," and the key wasn't even there in the first place. Like that stuff, it bothers me today. But as a kid, it very much upset me. <laughs> where I was like, like the fact that so many characters in this movie are unhelpful to Alice, I think made it a very tough watch for for child Ryan, and then. I don't remember if it was during the movie or after the movie or even a few days later because, again, this is just how memory works and kid brains. But I remember being in that bathroom and I guess I had put, like, too much soap on my hands and I went to, like, open the door and my hands were soapy enough where, like, it was just spinning around the round knob and I couldn't get the door open and being very, like, freaked out by that experience. You know, I definitely went and, like, you know, got Alice in Wonderland at some point out of the library because, you know, I was the kind of 12-year-old or whatever that was like, this is an important book that I should definitely read. And, like, I, you know, it's interesting because I enjoy wordplay. I do tend to struggle with stories that are based on dream logic. You know, like, I, you know, and, and especially, like, absurdity and there being rules, but the rules not being clear. Like, all of those things are, are things that I just generally struggle with as a person in terms of like things I enjoy. I don't actually know that I've ever read the book. I read all of the Oz books and there's a ton of them and they definitely get weird. I honestly don't remember all of the ways, but I know that there's just endless weird things with various princesses and scarecrows that sometimes are human and sometimes aren't. And so I think that my cousin just strongly felt that I would love Alice in Wonderland. And I enjoy it, which is maybe a surprise because obviously I have been kind of a stickler to like, ah, it must have narrative structure. I kind of enjoy it for what it is, 
Because they tell you at the beginning, the entire concept is it's a world full of nonsense. But I do think that the, the overarching emotion of the film is frustration. And I find that kind of funny. But I think if I were in the situation, I would very much not find it funny. I would just be seriously annoyed by all of it, which I think definitely ties into like your younger perception of it. Yeah, no, I definitely, and you know, this is maybe the wrong thing to reference for this particular podcast, but I definitely would be like the Daffy Duck or whatever in this situation where like crazy things are happening and I just want things to make sense. Maybe it wasn't until I watched Inception for the first time and I was like, ah, yes, this is what dreams should be like, <laughs> basically reality, <laughs> but with MC Escher steps. And so I, I think that's part of the reason why I struggle with this movie in particular and but also even compared to Wizard of Oz, which I think is a very good comparison and one I also thought about while watching this, like in the film Wizard of Oz, Dorothy's primary goal is to get home. Like immediately she's like, I'm not supposed to be here. You munchkins are real nice. I need to get home. And they're like, the person to send you home is the wizard. And she has like a clear, even though there's things that get in the way and there are things that like kind of don't make sense. She has a clear goal the whole time and she is moving towards that goal, you know, even if that turns out to be not the case and she could get home the whole time, which is like, whatever. Not my favorite thing about that story there. But, you know, the fact that she has a stated goal where Alice is like, I'm just going to kind of wander around down here. And then like, you know, then when I finally think I'm in like mortal peril, like then I'm really going to like wish I was home and then just wake up. And I also enjoy that in the Oz sequels, it's not a dream and Dorothy like or other characters actually go to Oz like a physical like it is it is established that Oz is a real place it does not just exist in a dream world yeah I think that there's definitely kind of a question with Wonderland if it's real if it's not and what implication that might have especially if you go to the books and we see that with some of the like the 2010 adaptations where they're playing with the idea of going back to Wonderland. But I think, like you've said, there's definitely more of a traditional goal and narrative structure in The Wizard of Oz. I will say, so one of the things that we're going to talk about in a minute is how many different forms this story went through. And we actually have access to the 1939 version. And in the 1939 version, I think Alice had a better path because she knew from the beginning that she was trying to get to the Queen's Garden. Mm -hmm. And that was what she kept bringing up instead of, I'm chasing a rabbit that I lost an hour ago and haven't mm -hmm. seen since. And I do wonder if some of the annoyance of the film would have been at least a little bit lessened if she had had that location in mind instead of just, let me find a rabbit that I may never find again. He'll know what to do. Yes, I, I think I think that sort of clarity of goal would have really helped because she obviously doesn't know where the rabbit's going. And it he sort of just like shows up randomly. Like, you know, he shows up during the tea party sequence, which from the book, he's not in that sequence at all. And I think them turning the Mad Hatter's watch into the White Rabbit's watch is a really nice way to make the story a little bit tighter and feel a little bit more coherent while you're watching it, but it's still, it, Alice doesn't know where she's going. You don't know where Alice is going. You don't know what, like, there's just a lot of, you don't know what's going on and none of the characters are, are going to help tell you. I can't point to a specific scene where I'm like, ah, this is why I don't like this movie, but it really is that the characters are just 
almost actively unhelpful to her. <laughs> like they have they have information and they're withholding it. And I can I can roll with the withholding of information if it makes a plot really funny, but like even watching this today, like I laughed maybe twice. I do think the queen and the king are very funny characters. And the Mad Hatter's line about mustard it does actually make me laugh every time. You know, I, this movie is considered very funny. And it, and I think your point is probably hits the nail on the head where, like, I just watched this and I find myself very frustrated <laughs> with everything that's happening. Despite liking a lot of the design work and the colors and the music, like, I think all the elements are very good. But it, it really, I think, is just a personal taste thing for me. For myself, I actually enjoyed it more this time than I have any time I've watched it before. And the voice actress for Alice, uh, Catherine Beaumont, she had said in an interview once that essentially every time you watch it, you're going to kind of experience it differently, which I know is like a vague quote you could say about any movie. But when I was watching it, the frustration was relatable because as someone who, for instance, just turned 26, I am in the period of life where I have to figure out like, how my own health insurance works and how taxes for being self-employed work and all of these things where the government and other people are actively unhelpful. And so I felt like I actually related to Alice in that, like, you kind of have a path up until you're, like, 21, like, once you are graduating college, basically, and then the world kind of spits you out and is like, figure it out and nobody's going to give you any useful information and at this particular moment in my life I kind of just related to Alice and being like yeah some days I just go along with the flow and others I'm just going to sit down and cry for you know an hour and we'll see if that fixes the problem so I actually I found it much more resonating with me as a young adult than it ever did when I was a kid well, spoilers for adulthood, that doesn't really ever go away. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I know. So uh, just, you know, just just keep that in mind, you know, as I was redoing our home and auto insurance this week, unexpectedly for reasons that are too long to get into on this podcast. But yeah, so I I think that's totally valid. And, you know, like I said, I should relate to Alice as, you know, I feel like but I feel like this movie just sets off my anxiety and always has uh, since I was a kid in just a particular way that that makes it hard for it to resonate with me. And I, because of that, you know, other than reading the book when I was a kid, I think in a, an attempt to sort of like understand the whole thing a little bit better, I haven't really done a lot with other Alice adaptations. Like I did see the first of the Tim Burton movies, but I haven't really done a deep dive on this whole thing except like here or there but i do you know like i like i said i like a lot of the elements but it's undeniable that this is probably one of the most enduring works of english literature uh, especially of the victorian era the book was originally published in 1865 and has never been out of print the book also includes uh, famous illustrations by sir john tenniel which is an interesting part of it because the prose was in public domain at the time that they were first trying to make the Alice in Wonderland movie but the illustrations were not 
And so Walt did actually get the rights to the illustrations because the idea was like, oh, yeah, there's these great illustrations. We'll just sort of turn those designs into animation. And then when actual animators got involved, they were like, that's not how this works. <laughs> like the way that those drawings are done, which are very sort of like, I would say almost like sketchy. Like there's a lot of lines. And with animation, the more lines you add, the more you have to animate, like the more you have to draw in every single frame. And so, you know, animation often tends to lean on simpler shapes, cleaner lines. It, it helps with the fluidity of motion. It speeds up the process a little bit. And so they ended up not using any of those illustrations. But I think that up until this movie, that was the popular sort of like the, the popular conscious version of Alice in Wonderland was based on those drawings. And we'll talk about this more with the reception. Because those drawings were so popular, they couldn't just copy them for many reasons, including what you just said, but they couldn't completely reject them either uh, because they were so deeply ingrained. I feel like now more recent adaptations can play a little bit fast and loose because we, at least as an American population, are more connected to the Disney movie than to the Tennille illustrations. But in that point in time, it was a dicey move to try and do something differently. And so they definitely had to kind of walk that tightrope in ways that were easier said than done. Yeah, and if you look at those illustrations and you look at the final characters, you can kind of see how they got there. And then seeing some of the concept art, you know, that that's in some of the sources that we use for the show including, you know, Mary Blair's concept art and others, you can kind of see some of the midway points where you're like, yeah, okay, I can see how they got from the original illustration to this concept art makes takes it in a certain, especially more modern feeling direction. And then the final product, you know, so I, I think you can definitely see the evolution of it in this. But you know, again, I feel like especially like you said, in the US, the popularity of this version gives more license uh, for people to sort of play with some of the designs. So when we're talking about this, you know, there's the popular conception, and this book was wildly popular. Interestingly enough, Queen Victoria was a very big fan of this book, or of these books, and ironically, the real-world Alice, who Alice in the book and movies is based on, was almost engaged to Queen Victoria's son, Leopold. They actually apparently had quite the flirtation, but there were laws stating that essentially she was too low class for him. So they weren't married, but interestingly enough, her first son was named Leopold and his first daughter was named Alice. So not only did the book really influence kind of the Victorian era, but also the original Alice herself, oddly kind of tied into Victorian monarch areas before he was, you know, kind of trapped into marrying a French princess, I believe. So there's just the, the source material itself, it would take probably three or four hours just to run through kind of all of the major facets of that. Looking more specifically within Disney, there's even a lot of kind of really big moments. So Walt has a quote saying, no story in English literature has intrigued me more than Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland. It fascinated me the first time I read it as a schoolboy, and as soon as I possibly could, after I started making animated cartoons, I acquired the film rights to it. Ironically, in the 1951 movie, they did misspell Carol's name. They only use one L in the title slide, but 
Walt, at least, never would have let that happen if he was making that slide, because he definitely had his connections to it through basically his entire career. Yep. And as we covered way, way back on our first podcast, Walt's first real success came through what are known as the Alice comedies. So just a quick recap, uh, they were a hybrid of live action animation. The first short was produced while Walt was still in Kansas in his home. They were part of the Laughogram series of cartoons that he was doing for a local theater there. And so in 1924, Walt sells the Alice concept to uh, one of the major studios, which kind of gives him his big break. And the the sale of the Alice comedies basically like was the reason that Walt and Roy were able to form the Disney Brothers studio way back in 1923, which is why this year is the 100th anniversary of Walt Disney Studios. From 1923 to 1927, they produced 57 animated, uh, or I guess hybrid adventures for Alice in that time. The Alice comedies themselves, they don't really retell the story of Alice in Wonderland so much as they use the same idea of a little girl entering a world of of magic and whimsy and and fun and nonsense. So it it is certainly borrowing from the concept, but it's also really interesting to see how you know, this material was built into, is so built into the history of the company. If you go back to the first one, which is called Alice's Wonderland, which by the way is available on YouTube for anybody who wants to watch it, it's about 12 minutes long, basically starts with a young girl running into the studio and demanding that Walt draw something for her and then dreaming all of these, you know, nonsense things. And that kind of goes back to Walt's first time being on screen and his idea of where imagination and inspiration came from. You really see that going all the way back to the beginning. Once they kind of started considering a full-length film around the era of Snow White's production, Walt wanted to do Alice in Wonderland. He wanted to make a live-action version starring Mary Pickford, But Paramount then put out their own live-action adaptation, and he basically decided he did not want to be competing with something. Ironically, that didn't work for him, but at least at this point in time, he kind of shelved the idea. In 1936, we saw the Mickey Mouse cartoon Through the Mirror that we spoke about a few weeks ago, which again plays with the idea but doesn't really try to address the full book or book series. And he just, he kept kind of trying to find the perfect way to do it. In March of 1938, he told New York Times Magazine, Alice in Wonderland should never have been done in the realistic medium of motion picture, which is ironic since he tried to do it that way. But we regard it as a natural for our medium, meaning animation. So by 1938, he kind of had seen that the fully live action didn't work, And he really wanted to kind of focus on the animated side of things, which is why 1938, he bought the rights to the book and the Tennille illustrations. He registered the movie officially with the Motion Picture Association and basically spent around 20 years grappling with the concept from the first time he put Alice on the screen to the time we actually get this movie because he felt like it needed to be done and he just couldn't figure out how to actually do it. And he struggled with that, and his studio struggled with that over and over for a couple of decades before they kind of found what they figured was their best attempt, at least. 
sort of reading through the production history, it kind of feels like Alice compared to any of the other films that we've talked about, or even some of the ones that we know we will be talking about soon. It feels like this had a sense of inertia and momentum that like the public was like willing a, a Disney animated Alice in Wonderland into existence. Like there's a lot of mentions in the Disney archives book of, you know, like people visiting the studio and being like, when are you going to do Alice in Wonderland? And like people like spontaneously bringing this idea up in front of wall. And so I, I do feel like there's a sense of eventually like pressure building up to where he's like, you know, we, we, we've kind of said we're going to do it. People keep asking about it. You know, eventually we have to do it, but it still takes a long, long time because we're, you know, this movie doesn't come out until 1951. And we're talking about stuff that's happening in 1938, where they're actively working on this. Al Perkins and David S. Hall were developing story and concept art for the film. A reel was met, was completed in 1939, but Walt was not pleased. And so the it was shelved until after the war. This version included the Mad Hatter trying to cut Alice into pieces, her being attacked by birds, her being put into a guillotine, presumably by the Queen of Hearts. I did watch through, uh, you were able to find a video that shows some of the storyboards from this version, if I am recalling that this is the version that we're talking about. And I thought it was interesting, the, you know, the art style, I think, is closer to the Tennille illustration style than the final version that we got. You know, it definitely has some scenes that did not make it into the final story. Um, I think the biggest difference is that the the potion that makes Alice grow uh, at, at towards the beginning of the story is an anthropomorphized bottle character. And then eventually that would be transposed onto the doorknob because they were worried about you know, Alice not having anybody to talk to once she falls down the rabbit hole before she properly gets into Wonderland, which I think makes sense. It, like, it, it definitely makes sense as an adaptation choice. And I think ultimately the, I think the doorknob is more effective than the bottle was in that storyboard reel. It works better, especially for kind of transitioning the scenes. I will say I liked the bottle, but I think that you, especially younger you, would have hated that version that much more because the bottle is not even actively unhelpful but actively antagonistic against Alice getting anywhere. It kind of teases her with the idea of what she wants just to kind of mess with her over and over. So instead of Alice just being really kind of random with like, oh I see food, let me eat it, we'll see if I grow or shrink this time, the bottle is very kind of forceful in like I'm going to make you grow and shrink too much in ways that will not be helpful to you. Yeah, no, I, I definitely, I personally not a fan of the bottle. And like I said, I think the doorknob is more than antagonistic enough <laughs> to me by just being like, oh, you forgot the key up there that clearly was not there when you were, you were tall and were able to reach it and bring it down here. And so, yeah, so that version gets shelved during the war. Walt had some strong opinions on trying to adapt this story so in a January 4th, 1939 story meeting, Walt says, I'll tell you what's been wrong with every one of these productions on Carol. They have depended on his dialogue to be funny. But if you can use some of Carol's phrases that are funny, use them. If they aren't funny, throw them out. There's a spirit behind Carol's story. It's fantasy, imagination, screwball logic, but it must be funny. I mean, funny to an American audience. To hell with the English audiences or people who love Carol. I'd like to make more or less a 1940 or 1945 version right up to date. I wouldn't put any modern slang that wouldn't fit, but the stuff can be modernized. 
I want to put my money into something that will go in Podunk, Iowa, and they will go in and laugh at it because they've experienced it. They wouldn't laugh at a lot of English sayings that they've never heard or that don't mean anything to them, yet we can keep it very much Carol, keep his spirit. And honestly, I actually think this is like pretty successful overall in trying to, I don't want to say like Americanize it so much as maybe de-Englishize it. <laughs> like I, I think Walt's impulse to make it universal, you know, whether or not you think Walt is looking down on Podunk Iowa audiences or not, I do think that there is something like there's still this still feels British to me, like especially with the dodo and Bill the Lizard with his like newsboy cap and his chimney sweep thing, even though that may just be a Mary Poppins association that I'm leaping to, which wouldn't have existed at the time, obviously. But I think But I thought about it too. (laughs) But I, I just think there is something intrinsically British about the story obviously the tea you know and all that kind of stuff and the queen are things that we don't really have here the way that they do uh in England but I think that was largely successful and I do think that not drawing all of the language directly from the book is actually pretty much the smart move his perspective here is kind of the perspective I've been developing over the past several years with adaptations which is capture the spirit but some of the bits and pieces can go if they're not working and so i I like what you were saying about it's not necessarily americanized as much as it's de-britishized because there's i mean even to this day a lot of people have talked about the fact that british comedy does not translate when an american says it or when an american writer is trying to write it there's a reason that people will argue about whether the British version or the American version of things like The Office, I think, are better because they're just totally different kinds of humor. And so this is something that Walt was really concerned with. He talks about this a little bit when he's talking about casting, that he needed Alice to be British, but not annoyingly British. She should be a palatable British, which was definitely a complicated thing to try and send in a casting notice. Please make your child British, but not annoyingly British. But it kind of worked in this way that he kind of got the best of both worlds. I will say that some of the notes talk about some really weird ways where they tried to go too far. According to cartoonresearch.com, some of the story creators, after he said this, thought that, you know, maybe the best idea was to get rid of croquet and just have a football game instead. And I don't think that would have worked. I think that the croquet is so foundational to it, but some of the other parts are very clearly kind of toned down from the British political linguistic, you know, chaos of Carol's original version. I do think seeing playing cards play American football would be funny, but I can see that croquet actually, I think, works better as... Visually as a story, uh, especially given the football short that we talked about uh, on our last episode or a few episodes ago, I don't think that action quite translates to animation the way that the croquet can in this case, because the way that that sequence is put together, you have the all, all the stuff with the flamingos and the hedgehogs and you get some close ups there. And then you also do the cutaway gags where the cards are sort of like lining up to either get the queen's hedgehog to go underneath or avoid Alice's hedgehog from scoring any points. I think that's how croquet works. I, I don't think football was the right choice, but I think in general, like it, it's the right direction. And 
trying to capture the spirit of the thing, but actually translating it and telling a new version in some ways, I think is is actually also helpful and really really makes this you know I think stand on its own and not just it. There's other quotes from Walt where he's just talking about the people who love Carol and who are like obsessed with this book that I once professed my undying love of. You know he he didn't want people to be too much of a stickler. You know, and I think there's a lot of material here too for what ends up being a, you know, hour and 20 minute animated film. Yeah, I think that there was a lot of kind of back and forth. And we saw this with some of the very early feature films where he wanted to, you know, celebrate everything he loved about these original stories. But he also knew that he had to change them at least a little bit. And so that, you know, led him to go wildly from one direction to the other. After 1938, he kind of just put it aside for a while. He was shown this full kind of markup of what everything would look like. And he was like, you know, let's just sit on it. You'll come up with a better idea later and uh, and then it'll work. And so he kept kind of every year, every six months, he would just, you know, bring it up and say, like, anything new? Not much. Anything new? No. Well, we had this idea, but I don't know leading up to April of 1941, where he brought it back and he said, okay, here's what I'm thinking. We do it with a live action girl, which is directly contradictory to what he said three years before about how live action won't work for Alice in Wonderland. So you definitely get this sense of Walt especially, but the studio as a whole really going back and forth on how they were going to tackle this kind of project down to literally what medium it was going to take, whether it would be live action, hybrid, or fully animated. So they've got, oh, well, animation is the only thing that can get the energy, but a live action girl is the only one that can get the right expressions. And they just, they didn't really know what was best, and they didn't know how to trust their instincts. According to Walt, they literally pulled together every single episode that was in the two Alice books, and just pitched them to these test groups of about 500 people just to see if they worked. And that was kind of how they broke it down. They were like, hey, do you like a baby that turns into a pig? No? Okay, scrap it. How do you like a Jabberwocky? No? Scrap it. And that was basically how they did it for the first five years of extensive planning. Just let's throw it at a wall and see if anything sticks. And they weren't quite finding anything that was sticking quite right at that point in time. Yeah. And so like many things, it gets put aside until after the war. Uh, And then in 1945, Walt brings in Aldous Huxley, uh, the author of Brave New World, but who actually had a pretty decent Hollywood career going at the time, uh, having gotten credit for adapting Pride and Prejudice, as well as Jane Eyre. And so you can kind of see as like Walt being being attracted to the idea of bringing him because he's like, oh, he's adapting other like really well-known British works of literature. And so we're, we're stuck on one. Let me bring him in. Huxley proposed a story where Lewis Carroll and Alice Little, who was the real inspiration for Alice, uh, were misunderstood and persecuted following the book's publication, which I think in a vacuum is an interesting story. Probably the wrong choice for an animated film. Huxley lo- left the project pretty quickly after in 
the the archives book, uh, there's a description of a meeting where, you know, Huxley's supposed to present all of his ideas and Walt talks for 90% of the time. <laughs> and so, you know, Huxley was like, Walt clearly has an idea of what he wants. Uh, me being a part of this isn't going to help this any long because I have strong ideas about what I would want. And so he sort of leaves the project. Bob Carr then starts to take over, but he has a quote that says, there's no story in the book. Alice has no character. She merely plays straight man to a cast of screwball comics. It is, it's too bad for any leading character to be placed in this untenable position. You know, and especially the way that people write a film versus, I think, a novel, especially this kind of novel, which is very much filled with poetry and puns and symbolism it's hard to translate that to cinema because in cinema, the the storytelling is all about the change undergone by the main character in a very obvious and, and visual way. And in sometimes in adaptation, they make choices because that's what screenplays do versus what the source material does, which is why like my favorite example of this being the first live action Batman film in, in the modern era, the Tim Burton one from 1989 with, with Michael Keaton. We find out in that movie that the Joker is the one who killed Batman's parents. And then Batman kills the Joker. And therefore the, the entire plot is resolved which is not how Batman works because if that happened that way, then in theory, his trauma should be uh, resolved and he should no longer feel the need to dress up in a bat costume and punch criminals. But that's how movies work. And so, you know, when they're adapting, it's one of the first real, I would say comic adaptations to screen to be taken seriously. It gets adapted into the medium of movies and is structured more like a traditional screenplay. And so from a, traditional screenplay point of view Alice is a very difficult thing to adapt which again uh, thinking of the Tim Burton version that's why like her return to Wonderland and she's got a like you know there's like a quest she's got to like find certain objects and things to advance the story you know that's that's again cinematic storytelling has these things sort of built into it because that's kind of how movies just work for the most part especially mainstream Hollywood movies have that sort of formula built in it is funny that i used two tim burton movies as an example because i was not actually intending to do that <laughs> it didn't fit the mold they weren't quite sure how to do it tim burton is kind of the master of taking these classic stories and twisting them and trying to find new ways to play with them to greater or less success depending on the project but it came to this point where we start getting, at least according to, you know, the Disney legends, as we'll call them, this idea that the Disney studio did not want to make Alice anymore. We don't know if this is actually true or if this was basically the propaganda they put out after the fact. But according to Ben Sharpstein, the animators didn't like the story, Walt didn't like the story, but everyone kept telling him to do it, so he just did. And at a certain point, he had poured enough money into it that they needed a product or else it was just kind of a complete waste. They still just kind of kept bouncing back and forth until Mary Blair steps in. And again, we're going to herald the name Mary Blair. She put together some concept art for Alice in Wonderland. And instead of having these very detailed, line-driven art, these very detailed, line-driven pieces of art like Tennille, she was using bold colors and weird shapes in everything. And when he saw that, he kind of got a sense of, this is Wonderland. It's not 
what we're used to, but this is Wonderland and we need to lean into this, which is when he kind of leaned heavy into the idea that this needed to be a comedy, that this needed to be about whimsy and music instead of necessarily being about clever wordplay that may or may not actually land in America. It's really funny that when I first read Queens of Animation and it was sort of like conceiving the idea for wanting to do this podcast, I was like, this is going to be a secretly a Mary Player podcast. And I'm so glad, Megan, that you've also decided that, even though we've never talked about that, really. Just my enthusiasm whenever her name comes up, I guess. But, you know, the fact that, like, basically... I feel like Mary Blair ultimately is the reason this movie gets made because her artwork and her designs for this are so good and so interesting and so different from the Tennille illustrations that it gives this movie an identity that I think it wouldn't have otherwise. In the archives book, there's a picture of her concept art for the uh, March Harris house, which we don't see in the movie, but it's this like adorable cottage with two thatch bunny ears sticking out from the top of it, which, you know, is based on the text. That's the way it's described in the book. But I think the way that she translates it, and it's sitting in the middle of this, like, forested glen, and it has this, like, mixture of whimsy and and darkness that I think carries all the way through to the final movie. And again, it's not that her, you know, her character designs get translated into the, the animated style they're using. You know, her artwork gets gets translated so it's almost like an adaption of her artwork and an adaption of this story kind of come together and give it this really bold and colorful and you know i i think the design elements are the things i like the most the the most out of this entire entire movie like the way that the flowers look i think is is absolutely fascinating the way that they come to life is is really interesting and the color choices with a lot of the like dark greens and there's there's almost a sense of of blackness around the frame a lot of times and it really i think relies on color in a different way from any of the other disney movies we've seen except maybe pinocchio but it looks so different from pinocchio because that felt very i don't know watercolor and painterly and vibrant and this feels very modern and clean and sleek There's a special that they put together called Reflections on Alice that goes into essentially how this movie was made and almost wasn't made so many times. And it does such a good job showing kind of side by side Mary Blair's version, the final version. And you can see it's not a direct translation, but if not for her seed, the movie would not exist or it would at least not exist in a way anywhere near how it was actually made and I think in a way that would have worked. I mean the colors, the boldness, the zaniness of the visuals are what makes Alice in Wonderland work so well despite the fact that as many of the story writers were talking about there's not really a story arc, there's not really a character arc but the animation is so powerful because of those punchy designs and the weird shapes and the way that I think at the tea party, when they're fixing the rabbit's watch and just destroying everything, I believe there's a point where they take a hammer and they smash it, and the entire screen goes grayscale, Mm -hmm. which is Mm -hmm. the most jarring shift in the entire movie. It's, It's kind of like in The Wizard of Oz, when Dorothy walks out into Oz and everything's in color, but the opposite. 
that there's this moment where it's almost like this is a turning point where this movie could turn into a nightmare. And it would be very interesting to see if they like cut the the back half and attach their like 1939 versions where it was creepy and somehow smashing the alarm clock made it that nightmare. But Mary Blair's coloring and, and shape work is so expressive of emotion in ways that I can't, I can't really put to words other than saying, look at this moment and think about how it makes you feel. Because that was one moment I just went like, oh my god, them stripping the color here has completely shifted everything I'm thinking about this movie. And I just know that's a Mary Blairism. <laughs> her designs are, I feel like this is the first time we're really seeing her aesthetic applied to an entire feature film. You know, we talked about with Cinderella that there were elements that she worked on. And, you know, there's elements of things that she's worked on all the way back to Saludos Amigos. But here it feels like this is like that we talked about in one of our previous episodes about the debate among like what is the Mary Blair movie. But I think for me, this is the one that I like most strongly associate with her work. And it, it really starts to come out in every single element of it, especially the, the character designs and, and like we've been saying, the, the overall feel with color. But even at this time, Walt then decides he really wants to go down this hybrid animation route. Song of the South is uh, coming out or has come out or, or about to come out. But that's going along really well, on a, at least on a technical level. And he had wanted Ginger Rogers to play Alice. The next year it would be Luana Patton. And then, then it goes back to being fully animated and the voice casting t- actually takes place. Ten-year-old Catherine Beaumont went out. Um, she'd be 12 by the time the movie was released. And they actually took her and a bunch of the cast and actually shot the entire movie in live action to give reference material for the animators. Uh, so it, it does exist with uh, you know her and a bunch of the other actors kind of all acting out Alice. There's a picture of her in a like a frame of a house like sitting so that they can get like where her legs and arms and, and head would be when she's in the rabbit's house. And there is actually a version of Ginger Rogers as Alice. Uh, Decca Records made a recording of it and a Disney artist did the illustration for the cover. And so technically, you know, it's not really part of Disney, but it is kind of a hint at a thing that, you know, potentially happened. Yeah, it's definitely one of those weird things where we have the legacy of a movie that didn't exist just kind of floating around in that record that I imagine is very difficult to get your hands on at this point. And then we have kind of the movie itself, which I can't imagine if Ginger Rogers was in it. It's kind of like, I think I brought up a while ago, they had thought about having Shirley Temple as the lead in The Wizard of Oz. And that would have taken away from the story in so many ways because it would have been the Shirley Temple show. And I think the same thing here, it would have become the Ginger Rogers show. Less so with Luanna Patton, but again, Disney's live action actors were kind of just being thrown in everything. So the people in that time at least would still very much have the, okay, this is the same person I've seen in the last three Disney movies that it ends up being really clever kind of how they put together their cast because they have a newbie or at least a relative newbie. I believe she had one credit before this in the lead 
and then some, you know, very well-known voice actors and actors as kind of the support roles to add that star quality and that extra height without necessarily making it a vaudeville production of its own. And so development of the story keeps going on as this is happening. At one point, Walt brings in a psychiatrist to try to find a new take on the material. Teehee and Bill Cottrell work on it. You know, nobody can really find the right approach. Roy comes to really hate it because, like me, he doesn't really find joy in the material, but also the drain on the company resources, as is Roy's role in the Disney family, is to always be the one worried about the financial situation. And so it really comes down to, I feel like they sort of found this in the animation in a way that, like, you know, we talked about with Cinderella, how it was kind of like Dumbo, where, like, everything was planned out. Like, everything pretty much went perfectly. Once they decide what they were going to do, it all comes together really quickly. And it feels like Alice is more one where they're still kind of figuring out as they go and, and you know, maybe not changing things on the fly, but it feels like because of the episodic nature of the story, the, each of the animation directors involved maybe has a little bit more of an influence and can kind of do whatever they want compared to compared to some of the other animated features they've done. Yeah, I think this was definitely more of a Bambi than a Cinderella in that they just kept tossing it around for years. And, you know, you can go back to that 1939 reel and see some shots that shot for shot stayed. And then a lot of things that didn't, where you can really see each kind of moment where these extra parts were added in. According to Ward Kimball, the sequence directors just kind of were given their own chunks and told to go crazy. And they did. And they just kind of threw everything they had at their sections, which is part of why I think it is so episodic that it was created in bits and pieces. But it became very similarly to Bambi, this kind of patchwork project that got the best of each era, but maybe not the stability or the clear through line that came from some of the more easily developed projects. You know, some of the other quotes in the archives book describe it as a, a three-ring circus and the different uh, sequence directors competing with each other, as you said, but like really just being like, okay, I really have to outdo everybody. And then so when you watch the whole thing just is always at the highest level of kind of craziness, you know, like everybody's throwing everything, you know, everything at it. The other name, actually, alongside Mary Blair that I really want to call is Mark Davis, uh, who was one of the Night Old Men. He was responsible for animating Alice. And I do think that her being a grounded character in a nonsense world where all the other characters are very exaggerated and you have characters like the Cheshire Cat who can actually like disappear and come apart and none of the other characters have to feel like a real human but Alice feeling that way, I think, makes the movie more effective because she is a, a real person in Wonderland. And you get that the, some of the same effect that you would get from a, a live action Alice in an animated Wonderland. But it's still all done through animation. And I think she consistently feels like a small girl in this really strange world. And I think the way that she moves, the, you know, the way her face and facial expressions are drawn, you know, when she it like starts to pout or when she cries like I think all that stuff comes across really well and that's that's all Mark Davis yeah I think that as much as 
you know, they hated the fact that Alice was the least interesting person in the movie. The movie benefits from that. She needs to be just a kid who's confused and doesn't know what's going on. And I found that really was effective in the scene where she bit the mushroom and got super tall and the bird was yelling at her. She's like, I'm just a little girl. And the bird's like, I'm sorry, what? You are taller than the trees. You are not a bird. Next thing you know, you're going to tell me you eat eggs. And she's like, yeah, that's a normal thing little girls do. And the bird's like, oh, so you admit you're a monster. And I just felt like that sequence in particular and the way that her animation is drawn is so well representing this kid that truly has no idea what's going on and is just kind of trapped in this world of insanity in a way that really worked, I think, a little bit easier than when she was trying to play into the insanity like she was at times in the tea party or in the flower scene, which is my favorite scene because the animation of those flowers is insane and so incredible. But Alice kind of disappears because she blends in with their zaniness. So I think that any time where we see her really just being kind of the straight man is some of the most powerful points where you can really feel the confusion and frustration that she's getting as she goes through all of these nonsense scenarios. I really think that's also true of uh, the scene with the caterpillar when he like blows smoke in her face and she's like trying to wipe, you know, like, you know, move her hand back and forth to push the smoke aside or, or, or dissipate it. And she's coughing and stuff like I think that stuff is also really well animated. And I, I mean, I agree with you. The flowers is also my favorite part of this entire movie because I think that scene is, is so well done and it handles the tone change really well too like the song is really beautiful and pretty and then you know they start calling her a weed and 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 bullying her and things but i agree with you all that works because of the animation and the design of the flowers and you know how many different they don't just like put the eyes in the same spot on every different kind of flower that's animating and they're all recognizable real flowers uh which i also think is is really cool and there's so much you know, there's so much great design work and animation in that whole sequence. But I, I totally agree with you that like, that's the challenge of it is that this whole story hangs on a character who isn't terribly interesting. So the performance has to carry it. And I think maybe the absurdity of a 10 year old girl play acting out this movie with, you know, established character actors and crazy props. And we t- we've talked about how rowdy the animators were you know, I think being in that environment, maybe they got a really good, like, naturalistic facial expressions and stuff out of her while she was sort of acting that they could use to draw, you know, to to base the animation on. Yeah, there's definitely, there's some clips again on YouTube of, like, side by side, like, the live acting and the animation, and some of her drawing is just absolutely stellar. I mean, Her facial shape is completely changed, but the expressions and the movements and the way her body kind of navigates these weird situations is really well done in ways that make her fit in the world without being kind of enveloped by the world. Like, she doesn't feel out of place there, but she also is definitely not a resident of Wonderland, this wild crazy land. 
you know, and, and I think it's interesting, especially by the time you get to the king and queen, you know, no one's calling her a monster anymore. They're just treating her more normally. Whereas earlier with the more animalistic characters, you know, she gets mistaken for a monster a few times by, you know, anthropomorphized animal characters. You know, I've talked before about the sort of development and emergence of this Disney house style. And really, that's all because of the night old men. And a lot of them worked on Alice after Cinderella wrapped up. And so that's where some of the similarity in the style of animation, the way the colors are done, there's a lot of similarity between the two because there were a lot of people who worked on both. And and so this house style, as I call it, is not being like imposed so much. It's just sort of, it feels like it's coming about organically because these, you know, nine old men are sort of leading the entire animation department. And, you know, they're picking people, they're developing the artwork, all that kind of stuff. And especially as Walt moves further and further away from being involved in day-to-day production work, it seems like they're the people who are sort of steering the ship in terms of the overall, the actual animation. And I think that for the most part, it works. I will say, as we pointed out in the Cinderella episode, young Cinderella is a carbon copy of Alice, which is a little bit of a, you know, kind of cheap move. But other than that, I feel like instead of it looking like they're borrowing things out of being cheap or being uh, unwilling to work, it just feels, like you said, like they're creating a style. They're really building the idea of what Disney animation was and will be for decades to come. You know, I really think of it jumped out to me the most this time with Lucifer and the Cheshire Cat because they are very different looking cats. I mean, even beyond the fact that the Cheshire Cat is pink and purple, the Cheshire Cat has shorter hair. Lucifer has a longer hair cat, but they both have very similar cat body shapes and heads. And so I don't know if they were designed by the same person or not off the top of my head, but the you can tell that like that that they look like a cat drawn by the same person. Like they look like two very different cats, but drawn by the same person. This comes to a point where it's it's really interesting to look at the production because on the one hand we have this storied history with trying to get a narrative out of this to the extent that you know they hated it so much. Walt literally shared in an interview, "quote We just didn't feel a thing, but we were forcing ourselves to do it." which is just a really awful thing to say about any work of art you've done. But then on the other hand, we do have these like insane complexities. So Alice in Wonderland has more than 350,000 drawings and paintings. Over a two-year period between 1949 and 1951, more than 750 artists worked on the movie. That's insane. 800 gallons of paint were used to try and get all of the things looking right. More than a thousand different shades of paint were used to try and capture the mood and the characters of Wonderland. So we have this kind of struggling story, but thriving technical side. And I guess the question I have for you is, does this feel like an unfinished product? Because Walt so frequently said that essentially they just gave in and said, we have what we have and that's what it's going to be so to you does it feel finished or does it feel like they really did just kind of throw it out to be done with it i think what's interesting about it is the way that it sort of morphs and changes over time and i think how i I started thinking about it while watching it was 
like it kind of feels like a package film in some ways. Obviously, the art style, as we've said, is pretty is like consistent throughout. But there's so many different characters and environments that Alice is going through. It, it feels almost more like a series of like I wonder if you broke this up into like seven minute shorts, roughly how it would play where, it, you know, each each segment feels so like not dis not disconnected because Alice is in all of them, but you know, they're not necessarily dependent on each other other than the very beginning and the very end, you know, when she's going back and forth to Wonderland. But once she's there, all of them, as we've said, it's hard to remember what order they happen in. You could feel like you can almost remix them in different ways. The Walrus and the Carpenter feels like a short that doesn't necessarily even need to be in this movie. And so I, I think it's really interesting kind of thinking of it that way in, in terms of not that, like I wouldn't call it unfinished, but it they clearly never found a stronger way to tell the story and still make it Alice in Wonderland. I kept thinking about the package films too, because like you said, I, I do think that you could just show five to 10 minute segments of this on like Disney Channel and they would be perfectly fine. Especially since Alice in Wonderland is so much in our like consciousness that I think that you could really just throw that out there on its own and not have to really explain who Alice is. Although the caterpillar will, of course, demand it. But I think that to some extent, and we talked about this, shorts were dying. You know, they weren't able to continue making that many of their shorts. The shorts in the 50s, you know, there were still a good number in these early years, but by the end of the decade, it was virtually non-existent. So I think that we definitely kind of get this complicated setting where I think that they probably would have been better off calling this a package film, but they knew they couldn't. They knew that they couldn't sell them as shorts and they couldn't get the money they needed with a package film compared to a full-length animated film. I mean, as it was, it didn't make up all the money that they spent when they first released it. So I think that to some extent, there probably were better artistic choices, but this was the only financial choice. I think that makes sense, you know, especially because we talked about the amount of color and sort of the, the the physical production of this being so lavish, but that also extended to the music. It actually has the largest number of songs for any Disney film, and over 30 were written for this movie. And some of them, we only ever hear snippets in the film itself, but there's a ton of music for this. There's always more songs in this movie than I remember. And because there's stuff that one, like I don't think of as songs, like obviously like The Walrus and the Carpenter, like is technically a song. And the, like, the caucus race is technically a song. Like, I don't think of them as, like, songs necessarily, but there's so many that pop up. And some of them are, are great. I The title song, I think, is pretty good. I really like in uh, Alice's song when she's talking about, like, in you know, in, in, in Wonderland, like, in her land, what, what things would be like. Golden Afternoon is fantastic. Obviously, the Unbirthday song, I think, is just you know, iconic. And so there's there's some great songs in here, but there's also just a ton more music. And they use the 50-piece orchestra when recording uh, the score. What is interesting, though, is 
when the film was released, there wasn't a soundtrack album. And this was the thing where even if the movie didn't make as much money, you think they would like this would be now a Disney that would think, oh, we can start to make up for the box office by selling records because, you know, maybe if enough people like the music, you know, they might they might hear the songs and, and pick up the record even if they didn't see the movie. Yeah, I think we're going to talk about it in the legacy section, but they didn't have a soundtrack for literal decades after this, which I think is in part because most of their songs were like 30 seconds long. And that's a really hard thing to sell a lot of tiny songs instead of five or six kind of recognizable known songs like we could say with something like Cinderella. Because like you said, I... You know, I took the notes and I saw, yeah, there's more than 30 songs that were written for it. And I couldn't think of a single one. And I literally sang the unbirthday song like two weeks ago because we missed. And this is going to sound ridiculous to some people, but my uh, my pets are very spoiled. Uh, we missed my dog's birthday because one of one of our uh, family members was out of town. And so when we were all back in town and remembered, I celebrated her unbirthday because that's what you do. And I didn't even think about it when I was trying to think of songs in Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, I, I think especially that song almost transcends the movie at this point. Like, because I, you know, I'm sure the concept, I mean, obviously the concept of an unbirthday, I would assume comes from the, from the book. But, like, I can't think of an unbirthday without hearing the song. <laughs> now it's going to be stuck in my head for the next, you know, week and a half. Yeah, mine too. <laughs> One of the hazards of, of doing a Disney podcast is the songs that will inevitably get stuck in your head. One of the things that actually influenced which songs they did and didn't do was actually uh, Catherine Beaumont herself. They had a few songs that they really loved and that they actually felt were perfect for the movie, but that she herself would admit... She could not sing. She was not as talented as you would need to be for that. Granted, she was between, I believe, 10 and 12 when she was working on this. She just didn't have it. And they figured it would be better to do songs that she could sing well, rather than to do perhaps better songs that she couldn't sing well. Uh, and so several of the songs were kind of shifted onto future projects including at least two songs that later went on to be part of Peter Pan, which is ironic because so did Catherine Beaumont. Basically, as soon as Alice came out and people didn't think her voice was annoyingly British, Walt said, cool, uh, want to be Wendy? And she was. Uh, she was the live action kind of reference and the voice for obviously Alice and Wendy in Peter Pan. And she was dangled from strings a lot over the span of like five years. She had a lot of weird flying, tumbling, going in weird positions to do over that time period. It's so interesting that they didn't just like hire a better singer just to do the singing voice. Because like that was definitely a common practice at the time where, I mean, even in live action where they would dub a better singer's voice over the actress playing the role. That's it's just really interesting. I did not realize that. But yeah, I mean, and, you know, we mentioned before Catherine Beaumont is this young girl, but she's surrounded by extremely talented voice actors. So Ed Edwin as the voice of the Mad Hatter, he 
has minor roles. He pops up kind of up in a bunch of different places in different Disney productions, including on screen in Mary Poppins, uh, you know, hanging out on the ceiling as one does uh, when you can't stop laughing. And of course, Alan Tydek, who is currently Disney's uh, Lucky Charm, where he's been in, I think the last, I think he's vo- done a voice in every Disney movie back to, back. yeah, I think it's back to Wreck-It Ralph, I think. Yeah, if not earlier. Uh, but the voice that he does as King Candy uh, is directly inspired by Edwin's voice, and in particular, his voice as the Mad Hatter, I think. And his performance has been described as he was so energetic and funny in the live action reference take that that's actually what ended up being in the movie, not what he recorded in the booth. So my favorite line in the entire movie where they are trying to fix the rabbit's uh, pocket watch and they're putting all kinds of thing in it and the March hair goes mustard and Edwin's like, he like stops. The whole thing like comes to a screeching halt, this entire like ridiculous high energy scene. And he's like, don't be ridiculous. And he's like a little bit of lemon. though, <laughs> And like, it's just the, the transition from like, that's too zany for this thing and treating his, you know, jam infused watches as actually fixing this thing to the point where no, that's not how you do it is just that is a, a, a that is humor that hits me every time. Uh, I always laugh at that sequence. Yeah, apparently a lot of that sequence was just him improvising things. According to some sources, his goal was just to make Catherine Beaumont laugh. And so anything that he could do to break her out of character, he would do. But yeah, he was originally a vaudeville performer. He was much more used to kind of the live audience-driven work. So they got him in the studio and they were like, okay, we've... We've even written down all your improvisations. We loved them. Go. And he was like, oh, a very merry unbirthday to you, <laughs> to me. And, and I love that because speaking, you know, as somebody who's done theatrical work, doing theater work with an audience versus like being in a recording booth is such a different experience. But I actually really applaud uh, the kind of technical side of Disney because I found that fact before I listened. And so when I was listening, I was trying to find, do you hear an echo in his audio that's not in the other characters or something else? And no, he is the only one who is using the live action footage as his audio. And you really cannot hear a difference because they were that good at matching up the sounds, which is just even today, incredibly difficult to do. Yeah, the amount of movies you watch and you're like, well, that line was ADR, <laughs> um, is is noticeable. And it it is pretty flawless in this. You know, of course, we also have Sterling Holloway, who voices the Cheshire Cat. We know him from so many other Disney roles, uh, the Stork and Dumbo, most famously Winnie the Pooh, of course. Verna Felton returns from Cinderella, you know, she was the elephant matriarch in Dumbo. She's the fairy godmother in Cinderella. Uh, here she voices the Queen of Hearts and does an, an amazing job, I would say. Just her, the way that her voice can change so rapidly is is so impressive. Uh, and then also Bill Thompson, who was the voice of the White Rabbit. He goes on to voice uh, Mr. Smee and Peter Pan, the King and Sleeping Beauty. Uh, and he does five different voices in Lady of the Tramp in various accents. Uh, so we'll definitely be talking about Bill Thompson again in the future. 
I just think that the acting, the voice acting is so incredible here that Johnny Depp is very impressive in the Tim Burton take on Alice in Wonderland. And, you know, so are so many of the other actors in that movie. But they just can't get the same energy, the same weird tones that the voice actors did in this. I will say in the 1939 version, they actually stated that they thought the voice of the evil queen from Snow White would be a good fit for the Queen of Hearts. And I actually love that they didn't do that because <laughs> she's such a different kind of queen. And to some extent, I will say, and, and this, is, this is me loving the villains more than the heroes, she didn't do anything wrong. She never actually said that she didn't want red or she didn't want white roses. She got annoyed that people were painting her trees, which I would be too. And then basically when people are making a mockery of her, she gets upset. But she's not just maliciously killing people for the fun of it. She, she has reasons. I'm not saying they're good reasons to kill people. But to be fair, in Wonderland, it doesn't feel like having your head removed is necessarily an actual fatal thing. It might just be like one day in mall jail in the real world. I don't know. But I feel like she has such a compelling take on the evil queen mantra that is just so, so different than what they did with Snow White. And I just really appreciate that they did go in such vastly different directions there. Yeah, and I think the directive of all the characters seem to be funny helps because I think that, again, it brings out a different kind of maliciousness as well, I think, in a really interesting way. As they're getting ready to release the movie, you know, they, they start promoting it. There was a TV special called One Hour in Wonderland, sponsored by Coca-Cola and broadcast on NBC Christmas Day of 1950. Walt acted as the host with Catherine Beaumont wearing an Alice costume. Bobby Driscoll is also there. And our friends from Fun and Fancy Free, Edgar Bergen and Charlie and Mortimer the Dummies, back again in another Disney production, which, you know, it has like a live action sort of Christmas party where they're all hanging out. And there were some clips of different things played, including a preview of the tea party scene from Alice in Wonderland. This is actually on YouTube. Uh, I was able to find it, and I I watched the live action, just the live action segments. They kind of stitched them together. Uh, it's about thirty minutes. I watched about half of it, mostly because I wanted to see Walt. And it's really interesting because he's definitely not the Walt Disney I picture on camera yet. Like he's still a little too young, but but he's a little more awkward on camera. Like this, it's an interesting midpoint between in Reluctant Dragon, where like it just it. He doesn't feel like he's acting at all. He just feels like he is literally just Walt Disney sitting there saying things that he would say and sort of the like, and now you're host Walt Disney era where like he's very like he's playing this character of Uncle Walt and this is pretty close to there, but he's not quite as natural feeling on camera just yet. And he's he's as much being one of the party guests, kind of organizing things. Like he, it feels more like he's hosting the party because there's a, a ton of people in the room, more than he's hosting the show. Because there's parts where he's kind of in the background, and Egg, Egg Bergen is doing some ventriloquism stuff with the kids and whatever. So it's not quite the full-on Uncle Walt that I think of just yet. I think that this is kind of an interesting time to catch him. Because keep in mind, in 1950, when Cinderella came out, he was already saying before that movie, 
Yeah, Cinderella's kind of, you know, it's not great, but Alice in Wonderland's going to be amazing. And he made such big promises, which is funny knowing that he apparently was not on board with this movie for so long that he just, he really needed to get the promotional stuff out there. And so while so many of the other films that he did, he kind of like dropped it and ran, he really was trying to get a promotional turn going. So Disney, Catherine Beaumont, and Sterling Holloway all appeared on the Fred Waring show in 1951. There was a promotional radio broadcast, but as they were getting into it, they turned it over to Walt to tell about the movie, and he seemed to forget everything. It actually led to this big panic for a little while that Walt was unwell, that something was dearly wrong with him or deeply wrong with this movie. But he, he just kept trying to go, but things started happening in weird ways. Specifically, there was another film version of Alice in Wonderland that happened to get there before him. And he immediately seemed to lose all confidence in what he was doing. Very similarly to back in the 30s when he dropped the project because a live-action version was coming out. So Walt had tried so hard to kind of build this up, and then he just deeply struggled to kind of figure out where he was going with it. So there was a legal dispute with Dallas Bowers' 1949 film version. He sued it, uh, to, he sued their company to try and keep it from coming to the U.S. They basically said that Walt was doing the same thing that they were doing, so nobody was going to judge it. And the judge basically said, if you can't handle somebody else putting out the same story and be confident that yours is better, that says more about you than it does anything else. Which may be fair enough, but certainly threw Disney kind of off his axis. July 23rd, 1951, a puppet version of the story goes into theaters. And then the premiere was either July 26th or July 28th, depending on where you were. And Walt just didn't know what to do. And so by the time the American press, starting July 28th, Walt left the country, theoretically to supervise the upcoming Robin Hood movie, but in large part probably because the promotional uh, period did not go well, or at least not as well as he had been hoping it would, and he just kind of wanted to save himself from the fallout. So, yeah, we have the London premiere on July 26th. During its theatrical run, uh, it was released as a double feature with True Life Adventures documentary short Nature's Half Acre. Uh, we'll be talking more about True Life Adventures in a couple of weeks, uh, so hang tight on that. At the box office, it made $2.4 million domestically, uh, but because the budget had gone up to about $3 million, the studio wrote down a million-dollar loss on the film. You get the sense that in... In England, it was scorned for veering too far from Lewis Carroll. And in America, it was kind of scorned for not changing enough. Uh, so Bosley Crowther reviewing for the New York Times said that if you're not too particular about the images of Carroll and Tennille, if you are high on Disney whimsy, and if you'll take a somewhat slow and even pace, you should find this picture entertaining. Slow is not one of the things I would use to describe this movie. <laughs> I think it moves very quickly. Another review in the New York Times said Mr. Disney has plunged into those works, snatched favorite characters from them, whipped them up as color for cartoons, thrown them, to the, thrown them together willy-nilly, scattered a bunch of songs throughout, and brought it all forth in Technicolor. And Time stated that 
Quote, just simply as the latest in the long popular line of Disney cartoons, Alice will actually develop storyline which the studio's continuity experts for all their freedom with scissors and paste have been unable to put together out of the episodic books. Much of it is similar stuff. Carol's Garden of Live Flowers prompts Disney to revive the style of Vistily Symphonies. Yet there's plenty to delight youngsters and there are flashes of cartoony ingenuity that should appeal to grown-ups. Which I think is a pretty mixed review. The comparison to the Silly Symphonies is interesting because I, I did actually think about Flowers and Trees once again during the flower segment. So I do think that's a that's a fair call out. But I do think that if anything, Alice has a style to it. That's the thing I like most about it. It's another one of these that like comes out, doesn't make a huge wave of success immediately, and is immediately disowned by Walt, who later said that he made it against his better judgment. It was nominated for one Academy Award for Best Scoring of a Musical Picture, but it did not win. And so there's not really a ton of success immediately upon release. That being said, it does grow. We'll talk specifically about the fact that the 60s, 60s and 70s, much like Fantasia, really started to kind of revive this movie as it was considered another of Disney's more psychedelic films, which I think is a fair assessment, but it becomes this interesting situation, like so many of the others, that did not succeed immediately, but that definitely ended up getting quite a positive legacy. For instance, today the Rotten Tomatoes critical score is an 84%, which is shockingly high for a cartoon. The audience score is a 78%, and IMDb is a 7.3 out of 10. Neither of those are amazing, but they're certainly not bad. They are much more successful than I think Disney would have considered it to be in the moment. There are a lot of legacies from later releases to the parks to spin-off media. But before we go into all of that, my question to you, Ryan, and to anybody else who wants to tweet us, email us, send us letters, what have you, is in your experience, what do you think is the most iconic part of this movie? So if you're just thinking Alice in Wonderland, what pops right into your head? What do you think has endured maybe more than the movie as a whole? Yeah, for me, it's it's definitely the, the tea party scene and in particular the unbirthday song, I would say. Because to me, like that's always what I think of first with this movie is the long table with all the teapots and, you know, Alice and the Mad Hatter and the March Hare and the Dormouse. You know, and part of that for me may be, again, the Unbirthday un song was definitely on one of those sing-along tapes that I had as a kid that I watched over and over. So I've seen that sequence or, or like an edited version of that sequence a lot more than I've seen the movie as a whole. So, so what, about, uh, what about you, Megan? Definitely, if I'm thinking of a scene, it's either the tea party or just the falling. The falling mm -hmm. is such kind of an iconic thing. And especially when we're talking about dreams, the idea of falling endlessly is such a kind of visceral, familiar thing. But to me, I think, kind of going back to what we said with like Fantasia, to me, it's the characters that survive outside of it. And I think specifically the Queen of Hearts and the Cheshire Cat have their own lives. They have mm. their own kind of entities outside of Wonderland. Obviously, the Mad Hatter is ridiculously famous, but has to be in Wonderland. I don't feel like he could ever come outside of it, but I could definitely see the Cheshire Cat causing trouble literally anywhere he could go. And I 
kind of enjoy the idea of all of the Disney villains meeting and how the Queen of Hearts kind of compares and contrasts with them. And Disney has done so much work of throwing the villains together in various kind of spectacles that I think those two characters kind of surpassed the movie in at least my personal experience with them. But I am also extremely biased because the Queen of Hearts is also one of the major characters, I would say, in the first two seasons of Once Upon a Time, which I dearly loved. So I'm also just preferring Barbara Hershey's version of it from Once Upon a Time slightly to to the animated version. No, but I, I definitely agree with you that in terms of iconic characters, they're definitely at the top in terms of, you know, when I think about like merchandise that I've seen in terms of, you know, the lounge fly bags that are like so popular right now, like the iconography of those two characters is is very vivid and very specific. And so it, it is interesting tracing the legacy of this movie. It was aired as the second episode of the Disneyland television series in 1954 in a version that was cut down to an hour running time. I'm actually just really curious about what they what they cut out exactly <laughs> to get to get it to get it down there. But you know, the first I think real sign of its potential popularity is in 1957, 2D Karamata uh, arranged and conducted a an original production of the score with Darlene Gillespie, who was on the Mickey Mouse Club show at the time. She had really stood out as a singer. And so he went and did an, a new arrangement of the film soundtrack of the film score and had her sing the songs. And it was a hugely popular record in terms of like critical and commercial success. And so, you know, this was kind of the the version of Alice in Wonderland that existed, I think, for a lot of people, you know, before home video, when if you hadn't seen it on the time it aired on the Disneyland show or in theaters, this would be the next best thing. And these versions were used for like read along books where you'd have like the book that you'd read along with the record. And selections from this album are still heard in some of the theme parks as well. And and it's a really nice orchestral version of the score with, again, some of the songs like Golden Afternoon uh, and the Unbirthday song, you know, have full on vocals to it. But it's a really well done, uh, like I said, very, very lush and rich version of the score. And then the only uh, soundtrack of the original score was released on vinyl overseas. uh, And it wasn't until the late 90s, uh, over 45 years after the original release, uh, was a soundtrack album of Alice in Wonderland put out in the United States uh, on CD. Another early piece of the legacy is the uh, Donald in Mathmagic Land uh, short that has a segment with Donald Duck dressed as Alice meeting the Red Queen on a chessboard. Uh, I do remember that I have seen Donald in Mathmagic Land. It, it's great. But it is nice that, you know, I always like when Disney reuses characters, you know, or like in the newer Mickey shorts where they bring in the evil queen from Snow White as a character into a Mickey short. Like, I, I like when they kind of mix mix it up a little bit now and again because they don't do it so often and so it always feels like special somehow i tracked down that short and it is super weird but that's kind of the point if anything you're gonna mess with wonderland super weird is kind of what you're getting but it kind of speaks again to the iconic designs of these characters i will say i find it kind of hilarious that i do find 
Alice's outfit iconic, and yet it is almost exactly the same as Belle's outfit in Beauty and the Beast, and as a non-patterned version of Dorothy's outfit from The Wizard of Oz. So, like, these, like, white and blue outfits are not iconic, but they feel iconic. And especially with that specific hairstyle, it definitely kind of registers that way in the, the uh, Donald short. But I think we kind of see continuing those little pieces that, you know, the character design or the music were really kind of working. And then in 1971, they rescreened the film. And that was the first time it had been rescreened. It was actually never re-released theatrically while Disney was alive, which is kind of sad given how attached he was to the project early on. But in 1971, it was screened on college campuses. It was officially theatrically re-released in 1974 and then in 1981. And it just kind of took off from there in this new environment. It wasn't necessarily that it was ahead of its time as much as it just hadn't quite hit the right audience yet. But it started to finally gain popularity there, but split kind of between the original lackluster response and the newer kind of frenzy for it, presented the idea that maybe this would be something better within the household. So it ended up being one of the first movies that was available on the rental market in VHS, in uh, beta, and then eventually as a laser disc. Yeah, when the when it when VHS came about and it got to the point where Disney was like, okay, we have to release things for people to watch at home. They sort of they've never publicized this, obviously, but you sort of get the impression when you look at the release schedules that like Disney internally has sort of tiers of movies with like Snow White, Cinderella, Pinocchio are all in the like top tier. And then they have movies like Alice in Wonderland that they're sort of willing to be a little bit more permissive of in terms of either poking fun at it or remakes or, you know, in this case, like being one of the very first ones they put on tape as it's like, all right, if it doesn't do well, like it's only Alice in Wonderland. We got a lot of other movies that we can, <laughs> that we, we didn't risk anything by putting out or, you know, in devaluing them in, in some way. So it's often one of the first ones that comes out on a new format, which is pretty interesting. So from there, it, it gets a, another release on VHS and then DVD for the first time in the year 2000. The DVD uh, included some of the original promotional material as bonus features. There was a restoration done on it for the 2004 release, uh, which also includes the one hour in Wonderland special, which again, I watched on YouTube, but it is on that disc. And that was put back in the Disney vault in 2009. I believe it's been released again, at least one more time since then, if not twice. Uh, and then it is obviously currently on Disney plus. And I don't believe there is a disclaimer on this one, which I'm actually surprised because of the caterpillar smoking and the Dodo smoking. There isn't a disclaimer. I will say, I personally don't think that the smoking necessarily needs to have it as much as other things. But I think that you also could have the argument that it's never explicitly stated what they're smoking. Whereas in, for instance, uh, Pinocchio, like, they explicitly have, like, labels of, like, tobacco, beer. And so they're like, oh no, this is, this is a candy cigar, and this is... This is an oxygen hookah or or something like that, that they could kind of 
be blindly ignorant to the potential harm with that. Yeah, now I'm trying to remember what... There's something I was watching recently where it opened with a a PSA that was like, smoking kills. <laughs> like, uh, And it just... It was using clips from from old movies of people smoking, and it just took me back to a time and place where, like, that was, like, the worst thing that we were, you know, that was, quote-unquote, the worst thing in any of these movies was that there were characters who smoked. Uh, and as we've discussed, there's a lot other worse things in, in these movies for kids. Although... I do think that, like, if you're a person who's, like, super concerned about kids imitating things they see in movies, her drinking an unmarked thing from a small bottle is not not, not, not a thing to integrate into your real life. Yeah, she just eats and drinks whatever she sees, and barring the time that it was obviously a carrot, pretty much everything she ate and drank had some suspicious uh, elements <laughs> to it, I would say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But as, as we go forward into the more modern take on the legacy, there are a ton of video game versions of this, including very prominent elements of Kingdom Hearts. In the early Disney princess lines, uh, Alice was sometimes included, along with characters like Tinkerbell, who are not Disney princesses, but were like iconic girls that kind of count. Technically speaking, Alice is declared a queen in the sequel book, but that is not good enough for Disney. And then, like I said, Once Upon a Time did feature Wonderland on multiple occasions. The Queen of Hearts was the main villain of the first half of season two, and then had at least one appearance in each of the next three seasons. They had a full spin-off called Once Upon a Time in Wonderland, and then a different version of Alice was a main character in the final season. So. There are many different kind of shows that tried to take their own perspectives on this, but there haven't been anywhere near kind of the insanity of remakes that you saw, for instance, with Cinderella, which is kind of an easier story to adapt overall. You know, and, and there there have been some other uh, on-screen versions from Disney since then. Uh, there was a live-action puppet hybrid show for small kids called Adventures in Wonderland that aired on the Disney Channel from 1992 to 1995, which I had completely forgotten about. And Googling it brought back some things I have not thought about in many, many, many years. It's uh, actually on Disney never... Plus, too. Oh, that probably is true. I don't know that I could get through it. Like, it is, it's like a preschool-style show. So I, I don't know how much I would get out of it now, but it just like had not even thought about it. But I remember really enjoying it on the like, because at the time Disney Channel was a commercial free premium channel. And so like in our household, we had regular cable, but we didn't have any, you know, premium channels. So like a couple of times a year, you would get a free preview weekend and we would just mainline anything on Disney Channel for the entire, you know, 48 hours that we were able to watch it. So I do remember, I do remember that show. Uh, at least a little bit. And then, as the previously mentioned, 2010 Alice in Wonderland uh, movie from Tim Burton, which is, uh, I guess, officially a remake of, of this movie. And then the sequel, Alice Through the Looking Glass, uh, comes out in 2016. And then last year, there's a CGI animated TV series called Alice's Wonderland Bakery is on Disney Plus and on it's Disney Junior, so again, it's in their preschool sort of programming line. And that series is about the great-granddaughter of the original Alice, which I think is really fun. 
And then in the theme parks, there is a, a dark ride where you ride through Wonderland uh, in the giant caterpillar, uh, which is unique to Disneyland in California. It's the only park that they've built that ride in. But there is a much more famous ride associated with this movie, which is, of course, the Mad Tea Party, the giant spinning teacups, which is in California, Florida, Paris, Shanghai, and Hong Kong Disneyland, as well as Tokyo Disneyland. So it's it's one of those, like, if it's a Disney park, the spinning teacups are going to be there, which is funny because I don't. I don't always make the connection between the teacups to the movie. Like I think of the characters and then the movie, if that makes sense. And then Disneyland Paris also has a hedge maze (laughs) called Alice's Curious Labyrinth, which is also based uh, on the, on this movie. So Megan, overall, do you like this movie more now than the way you remembered it? Like how was this watch for you? So I think overall, I like the idea of this movie, better than I like the movie itself. Like the idea of Alice, you know, traveling through this dream world has always really kind of captured me. And the characters of the Mad Hatter and the Queen of Hearts and the Cheshire Cat have always been really important to me. But the movie itself is kind of take it or leave it, which sounds really weird but as we said kind of speaks to the very kind of episodic nature of it like i said at the beginning i resonated a lot more with the frustration of alice's like meandering and not getting help from anybody but the story itself you know it it's fine Uh, i could probably take it or leave it but it It's not like the story I'm going to hold up as the best movie ever, but its concepts I think are better than some of the other things that that I would say had better stories overall. I think that makes sense. And I think I mostly agree. You know, it's not it's not a story that's ever truly spoken to me. And I think actually your comparison to Oz, like I I I am I feel more drawn to the Oz stuff than I do to anything Wonderland related specifically. But that said, I do think this is a, you know, like I said, a good deep Britishized adaptation of it. And again, like just the, like the design work, the animation, the music, like all of the, the performances, all of those things are things I like, but they're just not in a, they're not being told in a way that I love. But I think that's more about me than it is about the movie. So it's not one that I would say, you know, it's just not one of my personal favorites, but I understand why people really like it. I definitely get that. It's funny. The more movies we watch, the more I like Pinocchio. Not because Pinocchio was necessarily the best movie in the world, but it just had kind of the synergy of the art and the story in a way that I think very few of the other movies have where they've really either had amazing visuals or a really compelling story but they've kind of struggled to put all the pieces together but i think that this is just it's it's a cultural icon in a way that i can't even explain and yet i don't love it as a movie and i don't I don't have any better way to explain it than that. It's interesting because I'm, I'm going to bring up yet a third Tim Burton movie this episode. But I really do kind of compare it to Nightmare Before Christmas, where like 
I do like that movie a lot. I like that movie more than I like this movie. But I think the characters and design from Nightmare Before Christmas extend beyond the movie itself. Like, I feel like there are more people who own, like, Jack Skellington hoodies than there are people who have actually seen Nightmare Before Christmas. And I think a lot of people have seen Nightmare Before Christmas. I just think they sell a lot more Jack Skellington hoodies. So, like, and again, when I referred at the top of the episode to, like, the Hot Topic crowd, like, this is you know, like the, like the, the stoner psychedelic side of this movie too, I think also helps the iconography of the movie live on more than the movie itself. Because yeah, like I'm sure this is a movie that you can sit around, like, like you can get high to and probably have like a fun experience because it's so colorful and, and everything. But the, what the character, the characters sort of being tied to that culture means that those characters then take on additional meaning that is not actually in the movie itself, too. I'm going to reference a Star Trek episode here, because let's just bring in all kinds of uh, weird (laughs) external things. So there's an episode of Star Trek, I believe, uh, Next Generation, where essentially they go to this planet and they can't figure out how these people communicate, and they eventually figure out that, like, their entire communication is based on references to, like, their core legends... And I feel like Alice in Wonderland fits that world. Like, talking about going down the rabbit hole or, you know, chasing the white rabbit was such a big Mm -hmm. deal in the Matrix movies. And then the Matrix movies with, you know, red pilling became such a big deal on the internet that I don't know if you need to see Alice in Wonderland as a story to understand our civilization, but I think that the rhetoric and the characters of Alice in Wonderland are part of American culture in ways that we probably wouldn't even think twice about, but that do Mm -hmm. come up just over and over again in ways that, you know, we often wouldn't even think twice about. No, I I completely agree. And I, I think this movie is responsible for that in America specifically. I think this is the American Alice in Wonderland it is the most popular version of it. I mean, it's amazing to me how popular the Tim Burton version was, which I think, again, is based on love of this movie and love of the idea of Wonderland more than anything in that movie in particular. So it, it really does, I, I think, have a life of its own. And I think that that to me is maybe the most interesting thing about it overall. But like I said, it's just not it's not quite my tempo, but I do... I love the animation. I love the design work. I love all the elements, but they just don't come together as a thing that I love. But I, but like I said, I get why other people are very, very attached to this movie. So as we're kind of wrapping up, is there anything else that you kind of spotted in this movie that stood out to you or things that you wanted to kind of bring to people's attention? Yeah, I think just looking at the paying attention to the colors, like especially like when she's in the forest scene and how like, how much blackness there is and then how vibrant like the you know like the umbrella vultures and all the little bird creatures look you know so I I think for me it was just like paying attention to the look of it I did find it really interesting how similar the card dancing was between this and the Mickey short that we talked about a couple weeks ago and so it was kind of interesting linking those two two pieces together but you know I really I really do have to at least talk about my two favorite characters that we haven't actually talked about really at all. One of which is is Dinah, who I think is just 
a perfectly animated cat. <laughs> like, first of all, she is like the MVP of this movie because she's like, I'm not going down there. <laughs> she goes all the way up to it and it's just like, no, this is not for me. I'm, I'm staying back here. But I think the way that she moves uh, and everything is just really, really well animated. And I just, I love the design of the King of Hearts and how much he just wants, how much he just wants to be included. I love the King of Hearts. He's so cute. I will say the rabbit is very mean to the King of Hearts, but the Queen of Hearts listens to him. And that's something that I don't think can be ignored. She's going off on her temper. She's about to, you know, kill everyone. And he's like, um, darling, do you think we could have a trial? And she's like, yeah, sure, whatever. And they do the trial. And, you know, she's like, okay, now I'm going to kill the girl. And he's like, um, could we have witnesses maybe? And she's like, okay, you know I love you, whatever. <laughs> and I just, I deeply love that. I will say in Once Upon a Time, and this is minor spoilers for people, the Queen of Hearts is actually the mother of the evil queen from Snow White. Mm. And the father of the evil queen is like this like doting father who turns into her servant, basically. And there's so many fun jokes in the fandom with the father character that he's around these two, like, extremely powerful, overbearing women. And he's just like, yes, dear, whatever you say, dear. And somehow they both kind of love him. Like, in one of the Once Upon a Time books, they mention the fact that, like, his dog sleeps in the bed with him and his wife. And it's like, oh, yes, the Queen of Hearts is really going to let, like, a random mutt sleep in her bed just because her <laughs> husband asked. And I just, I love the idea of the King of Hearts being just this little demure fellow who just is genuinely loved by his wife. He's like, I acknowledge I'm not the powerhouse here. I don't want to be the powerhouse here. But if you can just occasionally listen to me, I will be happy. And I do... Thank you for bringing that up. I I love, I love the King of Hearts. And like I said, he just wants to be included. And I I do enjoy how dismissive the White Rabbit is of him. Like I, and I don't even think it's like I I think it's totally one hundred percent like a, a personal thing. He's just like I do not get along with that guy. <laughs> he just finds him really annoying for whatever reason. But yeah, and, and like I said, I think that the the characters are are just so lively and I, I really like golden afternoon as a song you know and and like we said the flower sequence is also my favorite part of of this movie so there's definitely aspects of it i enjoy but it's it's not one that i'm like oh i've i've had a bad day let me go and revisit a favorite it's it's, it's not going to be on that list so one thing that i wanted to bring up and again this doesn't super matter but if i tell you to close your eyes and and here's the visual we have one hallway and on either side of the hallway are a series of doors or pathways. And there's a chase scene and people keep running down hallways and exiting different hallways. What does that make you think of instinctively? So, I mean, you're gonna want me to say Scooby-Doo, which yes, definitely. But I'm just a person who has strange interests. And so it makes me think of the Beatles Yellow Submarine movie, um, which goes back about almost as far there's a very like there's a crazy sequence where that happens for quite a while towards the beginning of that movie but yes i also i also think of scooby-doo especially when it is a single static background 
and the characters are sort of popping in and out of a static background. I, I definitely also think of Scooby-Doo. Well, you you ruined my uh, illustration, but I, I respect that. Uh, I will say, as they were chasing Alice and everyone is running back and forth, they had that shot and I immediately went, wait a minute, Scooby-Doo doesn't exist yet. Did Scooby-Doo steal from this? Which is also one of my favorite things with this podcast, where I'll go back to things and go like, Okay, the, like, origin of this famous thing is apparently not what I thought it was, because Mm -hmm. Scooby-Doo will not even be created for another decade, decade and a half, much less, I think, probably the 80s, 90s Scooby-Doo, which is where we really get the hallway scenes, because I think that's very much a what's new Scooby-Doo era thing. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely in the original because I'm more familiar with the original and also a pup named Scooby Doo, which is sort of the the Muppet Babies esque incarnation of it. I mean, they're not babies; they're like you know, supposed to be like twelve year olds or something. But uh, but yeah, no, it's it's definitely a long time Scooby Doo thing. But I don't know where it exactly it originates, but it it might as well be here. I don't know if anybody at home happens to know where the origin of this kind of shot comes from. Otherwise, I'm believing it's this movie and very surprised by that, to be completely honest. Because I remembered the chase scene, but not specifically the hallway dashing, which mm-hmm. makes sense with the, the hedge maze. But I don't think about the hedge maze when I think about Alice in Wonderland. I think about the painting the roses red. I will say I actually did think about Barbie while watching this. Because of the, when she's running through the corporate office. Yep. In, in that, that chase scene with the cubicles, I did think of that while watching Alice in Wonderland this time. I definitely can see that connection. I saw the Barbie movie probably a week and a half ago now. And yeah, there's definitely that connection. And it's vaguely Alice in Wonderland-like to just randomly stumble upon, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Barbie, just end the episode now. It's very Alice in Wonderland-like to just randomly stumble upon the creator of yourself, just like chilling in a room. I could absolutely see a version of Alice in Wonderland, and I'm sure there is one. And there probably would have been if Aldous Huxley had gotten his way, where Alice just randomly runs into Lewis Carroll and is like, okay, random photographer dude, you're here. That's weird. So, yes, I definitely see the Barbie connections. Well, supposedly, Lewis Carroll's the Dodo, so technically he is in this movie. (laughs) I did see that, that he uh, stuttered and couldn't say his own last name correctly, and that's how he got Dodo, which I find very interesting. I'm really excited to keep kind of on this trajectory. We've obviously got a British path ahead, But, you know, we talked about so much in this movie kind of borrows on Cinderella and so much of Peter Pan will borrow on this that we will discuss later from music to actors to designs. So I'm looking forward to that. We do have at least, uh, I think, two weeks before Peter Pan. So for those of you looking out here, next time on Dream With Mind and Heart, We head to Sherwood Forest for the first time with the story of Robin Hood and his Merry Men. No, not the animal one that you immediately think of. This is going to be another live-action British production that you've probably never seen or heard of. But we'll see what kind of fun, zany things we can get to with it.
In the meantime, you can always email us at dreamwithmindandheart at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter, DreamMindHeart, and on Instagram at DreamWithMindAndHeart. Thanks to Rosalie Kicks for our artwork, Honey Badger's Folk for our theme song, and our editor, Tessa Suela. <laughs>